Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Muna Abdi, and in this episode, I'm joined by two incredible early year specialists to talk about the importance of anti-racist practice within early years. Liz Pemberton is a former nursery manager, qualified secondary teacher of childcare and health and social care, and is the director of the company Black Nursery Managers Training and Consultancy, which specializes in anti-racist practice in the early years. I'm also joined by Jamal Carly Campbell, who is an early years educator, consultant and aspiring children's author, and has been in the industry for over 19 years. Jamal is one of the UK's Men in Early Years champion and ambassador, and has worked in youth clubs, schools, as well as mentoring many, many young people. It's a real honour to have them here with me today to have a conversation about what it means to embed anti-racist practice within early years. Hello, my name is Jamal Carly Campbell. I am an early years educator, consultant, advisor, mentor, and aspiring children's writer. Um, I've been in the industry for over 19 years now, and I just love working with children, you know? And I'm a black man, yeah? Six foot, gold tooth, brown skin, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Liz. (laughs) Hi, I am Liz Pemberton, otherwise known as the Black Nursery Manager. Um, For the past 16 years, up until uh, perhaps July of this year, I was managing a children's day nursery, which is part of um, my family business. Um, a day nursery which was predominantly black and brown children. And um, by brown, I'm referring to children of South Asian heritage. Um, and the work that I have done has always been about exploring identities and expectations placed on black children um, under five. Uh, I'm also a qualified secondary school teacher taught health and social care and and childcare, as well as drama, because my first degree is in theatre in English. And for the past few months, I have been engaging in anti-racist practice, delivering training and consultancy under a business that I set up as a result of the pandemic called the Black Nursery Manager Training and Consultancy, um, and have been really engaging with a lot of different organisations about how to really tailor practice that looks at embedding anti-racist practice for for children under five. Amazing thank you so much I'm so humbled that you two are here because I I admire your work so much and I respect your work so much and a lot of the conversations that we've been having on the podcast so far have been around the education system uh, but we haven't touched upon where learning actually starts in early years and it's so important that the work that you're doing around early years is is centering around an anti-racist lens so why is anti-racism work so important within early years what do you think I think it's really interesting that the conversation actually um for a long time has really overlooked or early years has escaped um, accountability with regards to anti-racist practice and just having a discussion about why it is so important um particularly as for a lot of children that's the first kind of institution that they will enter where they're engaging with people outside of their family Mm. and more often than not those people are not going to look like them they're not going to share the same cultural background the same racial background and given the society that we live in given the climate that we are living in in the UK 
it's really um, a strange assumption that narratives around racism and xenophobia um, wouldn't reach into the early years because we know that they do. They penetrate into the early years. They penetrate into the staff team. They penetrate into the organisations. And so we have to kind of look at structural racism, systemic racism, individual cases of people's views and thoughts about difference because it exists and it always has existed. So I've, I've always thought it's very interesting that the early years has looked at diversity as a very broad umbrella. It's looked at inclusion, um, but not specifically always about amplifying conversations with regards to race and anti-racist practice. Absolutely. And I, I think it's important that you highlighted the fact that this is a multi-layered issue. Yes, it's systemic. Yes, it's institutional. And yes, it's, it's interpersonal. Why do you think the conversation has been so invisible within early years? Because the, the infrastructure of the early years has been built around the, the infrastructure of this society, which is racism. Mm. Straight up and down. It's evident um, from the way that the curriculum's been written, from the way that, you know, the recruitment's done, and even the way that the, the pedagogy that a lot of the practitioners are, are using to teach and the way they approach children. We, we know that in society, you know, racism for a little while now, you know, was seen as this mythical unicorn that didn't exist, you know. Mm. Oh, slavery was over a long time. You've got a chip on your shoulder, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, but it exists. It exists. You see it from simple things like practitioners telling children that they're wrong for calling a banana green you know because they don't have they don't have an understanding of certain cultures and anything that a child that comes from a black background you know is wrong you know mm. not understanding how to support black children emotionally you know not understanding the the, the different types of black demographics mm. that come that come out of blackness you know you can be yeah. black african you can be black caribbean you know that's not understood. And even within the, liter the, the literature, you know, there's not enough representation. You, you can see how, how important it is to not overlook the, the, the racial side of things in the EY. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, have a, I, I have a strong feeling that this is also because of the fact that in all of the different levels of education we have, the area of education that is the least representative is early years. If we look at it in terms of representation, it's very rare to find a person of color working in early years that is has been able to progress through early years and be in a leadership position. It's even more rare to find a black man working yeah. in early years and in primary. And there's a lot of things that we can say about why that's why that's the case as well. But I also think it's the one area in education that is disproportionately represented by white women mm -hmm. and I think that's probably a conversation that's that's worth us getting into as well because there's this whole conversation around anti-racism work around the way in which there has been an idea around the caring nature of whiteness and around femininity and and so when they occupy spaces like early years and primary settings the idea of it being a socially just space is almost taken for granted 
that you you must be because you're you're a good person you're a good natured person to be in that particular type of role and so there's a lot of things that should be questioned in those spaces that are not so Mm. what is it about the representation that is so significant in this conversation that we're having so it's really interesting because the narrative of kindness has been something that's overshadowed a lot of dialogue that could be happening about dismantling anti um or dismantling racist practices the narrative of kindness, particularly in the early years, being dominated by, you know, the presence of white women, instantly creates an unsafe space for racism mm. to be discussed. And I always find it a very, um, the notion of, you know, Karening, it's something that I speak about a lot as, you know, the rise of the Karen came about through, you know, popular discourse with things that were going on in America. And once again, England was able to shift this thing over into it being a US narrative but it's very much a narrative that's adopted within the UK and it's very very present within the early years and looking at that terminology and how it's used I think one thing that's been really clear is that people are still not willing to engage with the underpinning meaning around terms such as being a Karen Mm. engaging with uh, an understanding of literature as Jamal said but also you know racial discourse being able to be reflective in your practice and also reflective in your practice. Mm. And I think white women, the history of white women is something that should always be looked at in terms of, you know, uh, patriarchy, um, oppression, being part of a system which jointly oppresses other people, marginalized communities, based on a range of things, but specifically when we talk about race, Um, And we think about, as I said, the role of white women as nurturing, as caring to who and through whose lens, through whose Mm -hmm. lens is care being analysed, through whose lens is kindness being analysed. So it's really interesting when we look at the perspective and the positionality of of care and kindness. Mm -hmm. What do we mean? What are we talking about? Because all of the systems that are used to govern whether an early year setting is is good or whether it's meeting you know certain criteria, that is all judged through a particular lens, mm. and it means that marginalised voices become pushed further and further down when we're talking about what does a, a care environment look like when that environment is predominantly black, yeah. what does black boy joy look like. What does expression and excitement feel like in an environment where everybody is black? These conversations aren't conversations that are had and they're conversations that need to be had. Mm -hmm. And also there is a real urgency for, I guess, power to be given up. You know, the power that is uh, possessed within the early years exists within, you know, lots of different educational establishments will share this. You know, it's a small sector of people who have that power Mm. but it's about understanding that that small section of people don't all have the cultural competency the understanding of what care or an early years environment looks like for different demographics that is why there is a need to have a conversation that is specifically about race cultural compatibility um, Mm. affinity and practitioners the race of those practitioners the ethnicity of those practitioners and what they are bringing to the table why is it so significant to have more black people within early years? What what do you bring to your roles that otherwise would not be there? Basically, the, the first thing is representation. You know, like Liz said in the beginning, you know, when you when when you're a child 
and you're you're making that transition from home to nursery you're walking into an environment that's alien and the things that help you to transition and to settle down is is familiarity seeing things in the environment that represent you seeing Mm. people that represent you and a lot of the time especially when it comes to like children choosing key persons you know often they would choose a key person that they can relate to you know there's some element of them that they see in themselves or they recognize from a parent or uncle and so on so having a person like me in a space a nursery space often a lot of the black children will pull to me you know and I've spoken about this with Liz um there's a little girl I've been transferred to support earlier's room and there's a little girl um she's AS and she stare at me and then one day she just touched my beard and was stroking my face and I said beard and then she started to stroke her chin you know when they started to walk around the room and stroke the chins of all the staff members within that room you know mm. and there was another man in the room as well and um, who's recently joined he's, a, he's a, a white man and she was looking at him looking at me and he doesn't have a beard mm. you know so you can see from that that it's important that children see not only black faces but all faces that represent our community you know so that's why it's important for recruit when people are recruiting for settings to recruit not only one particular type of person recruit a, a, a broad range of people you know a broad range of people that are good at what they do that sometimes means being quite uncomfortable because you're stepping out of what you're used to seeing and yeah. we know that people tend to recruit based on you know themselves there isn't this true deep reflection that goes on when we are looking at a recruitment procedure particularly mm. when it comes to early years and that's why you tend to find that the statistics have stayed the same you know mm. we are not represented within the sector we're you know considerably underrepresented I just wanted to kind of come in and say that, Jamal, because I know, you know, our, our colleague, Shadai Tembo, has written yes. extensively about that in a, you know, a recent journal piece. Yeah. He talks about black educators in white settings, white making settings. racial yeah. identity visible in, in early childhood yeah. education. And Shadai wrote this paper. And it, it's such an important paper to amplify mm. and yes. to look at. And I know it certainly excited me when I saw it because I was like, oh, finally, somebody's speaking my language. You know, mm. and it's meant that we've been able to connect. It's been great. It's been fantastic. Within yeah. that, you know, there's a level of solidarity. Mm. Which we have been thirsty for, yeah. thirsty for as black educators in the early years. Mm. You see that, you know, just in terms of how we engage. Yeah. And you have educators in all educational settings who, when they are black educators, are saying, by just being in that space, I am making race visible in that space. And then you have others who are vocal and are actually practicing anti-racism and are being hyper-visible in that space. And that comes with a huge amount of risk. So what are some of the risks that comes with being not only a visible Black educator in that space, but a visible Black educator that is an anti-racist in that space as well? First of all, you get people that, that would label you and look mm-hmm. upon you with this, this kind of side eye, you know, this sceptical eye, like, oh, he or she is going to be judging me for my practice. And um, there's a word that Liz always talks about, it's that that white, you know, that fragility, mm. you know, where, oh, they don't want to be labeled or looked upon in this way. But if you're doing something that is discriminatory, you will be addressed. You know, we're not going to hold back. We're not going to second guess. 
And I feel like sometimes there's there's a big issue with people feeling brave enough to 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 call out racism, you know, mm. to call out the injustice. And and it's because you're made to think that you're wrong, mm. you know. The 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 act is downplayed. And yeah. that in itself is something that affects the the amount of people that are actually staying within the sector. You know, black people that want that are passionate about children, but just based on the, the fact that they can't really express themselves and and they're not getting treated the way they want to be treated, you know, they end up leaving. Mm, absolutely. And you feel like you're always pushing against the current. Yeah. You're always calling something out. You're always naming something. You have to be vocal as well as being visible in that space. And you're absolutely right. It's one of the reasons why we have such a low teacher retention rate at all levels, but mm-hmm. predominantly in, in early years and predominantly in, in primary education as well. And they are the two areas within education that are always considered to be the most caring, the most nurturing, the most kind in terms of the narratives around them. So it's really ironic that that is where the black educators that we have feel the the most unsafe. Mm, that's a real interesting kind of analysis of it as well, Muna. And I would say definitely there's a you know that word unsafe. Mm. It's very real. The gaslighting of black educators is very real mm. and it's very tiring. I'm tired. I go onto Twitter and I am tired. What also happens is that I become fiercely defending of people like Jamal in that space mm. as a black man, because I know the lens through which he is seen. I know the lens through which he is seen by white women who dominate mm. the early years. And I know if Jamal is under attack, which he has been many a time by white men and white women in mm. the early years, it's disgusting, it's appalling and it upsets me. Mm. physically upsets me and me and Jamal have had many a conversation about this white lens and what it looks like when you are being basically you know for want of a better word it's that it's that Emmett Till Mm. syndrome Mm. it's that Mm. oh he did something or he raped me he looked at me he did and Mm. it's so violent it's so violent and it's so upsetting yeah depressing but these are the same people that will talk about advocacy for equality yeah advocacy for kindness advocacy for be nice what accepts if you're a black man yeah you know and so when we're looking at blackness and we're looking at all of the ways in which it presents itself and we're looking at visibility hyper visibility and also as well something to say about presentation Jamal spoke about the fact that he's Mm. six foot he's got a gold tooth that he presents in a tracksuit more time that's important that's loud Mm. it's what I need to see it's what makes me feel comfortable and in terms of engaging with that as a child I know the the children in my setting you know they, their dads, their uncles, their brothers, the people in the community, their barber, they look mm. like Jamal. Mm. They look like Jamal. So when I thought about external practitioners coming into the setting, you know, Moon, I know you know Craig Pinkney very well, mm. but Craig was somebody who would always come into the setting um, every year and do work with my black children because his presence yeah. alone and the way he looked, his aesthetic, it meant something, it translated mm. into something that I couldn't teach yeah. a white man. I couldn't teach a white man to do yeah. that. And sometimes it's about understanding and accepting when I spoke about power. Sometimes you have to just relinquish your power, you know, and just be like, this isn't me. I'm yeah. going to get somebody and I'm not a black man. This is not my bag. I'm going to holler at my brethren, Craig, because Craig yeah. can do this. Mm. You know, if, if Jamal was in Birmingham, Jamal would be my point of court. He'd be coming in. Yeah. And so I'm saying in this, when we look at power structures within the early years, 
the hardest conversation that I think we are faced with is about the fact that you like need to relinquish your power you know you can't do everything mm. so so sorry mm. sometimes early years practitioners look like me talk like me use slang yeah. you know we had this conversation on Twitter the other day it vexed mm. me mm. but I talk like this this is how I speak I've still got a few letters after my name yeah I'm still the director of a company I'm still leading training without the backing and the certification of any early years organizations mm. I'm out here mm. yeah so I'm not going to adapt or change or you know be palatable yeah your version of blackness this is me and I say it all the time I'm blickety black whatever that means to you I know who understands that you know that's my audience that's who I'm speaking to and anybody else that wants to go on this anti-racism train can come but I'm not going to be your version of what you believe to be a palatable mm-hmm. black woman. Yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm not bending yeah. down anymore. Yeah. My grandparents have done that. My parents have done that. I'm not doing that. Yeah. 2020, mm-hmm. you don't need to get yeah. with the program. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about this idea of being brave or being courageous in spaces. And for me, it feels as though seeing so many different representations, but specifically seeing so many different representations of blackness is essential for young people so that they can actually feel the confidence and the freedom to bring their authentic selves into spaces. But I always, and I, again, Liz, is this is the fierce defensiveness I have of the black male experience because I have brothers, because I have nephews, because I have cousins, that when I see individuals like you, Jamal, when I see Craig, I can't help but think about how much courage you need to go into spaces that are inherently violent for you every single day. And as somebody who's your sister, all I can do is externally from the outside, advocate, challenge, raise my voice as much as I can. But you make the choice every single day to enter into those spaces that for a black man, and I say explicitly for a black man, are possibly the most violent spaces that you can enter into, into society being in the education mm-hmm. system. Because mm-hmm. it is in early years and throughout the system that young black boys are dehumanized. And Mm -hmm. you've gone through that system and made the decision to enter back into it as an educator. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me is is such a powerful thing for young people to understand that you're not just there as a physical representation for them, Mm -hmm. but that you are a representation of that this system doesn't destroy you, that you can actually go full circle, go through the system, come out the other end and be the educator that you wanted to see when you were a child. 100% and it's important that like the the teachers the the next generation of educators pass the baton on you know and and encourage these young men young women you know because for myself I only got I only walked this path because of my uncle because of my mentor he's the one that pulled me off the streets as a young man you know and said come I know you've done some bits and bobs before come I know you'll be good at this Let's see how you do. And I, I worked in a youth club and then afterwards told me to get my qualification. And I ended up stumbling into the early years and being a member of the community, a known face in the community, I was accepted. Mm. And um, a lot of the, the youth that I mentor, you know, I told them all the time, you can be anything. Mm. Don't let anyone, anyone tell you any different. You know, I've got a young man that I mentor you know, he, he's about, he's on the streets and doing whatever he's doing. But this guy is so intelligent. He has a, a, a vast knowledge of herbs. 
mm. healing herbs, different teas, different remedies and so on. And I'm like, look, do you know what you are? You're a healer. That's what you are. You're a doctor. You don't even need the PhD, mate. You're a doctor. You know, and he gave me some recommendations for um, an injury of mine. Mm. And I was like, wow. And then I saw a document about that pop up on the internet. And I was just like, this is crazy. So it's for us to, um, they say iron sharpens iron, you know, to mm. continue holding these discussions and connecting with like-minded people to, to, to show the wider the wider world, you know, that look, there are black educators that are about something, you know, and, and, and are really investing in their communities to bring about real change, not tick box change, mm. not Black History Month change, not inclusion policy change <laughs> or, or equality policy or UNICEF rights of the child change. No, real change. Absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm just thinking back about my sister now. I think she is a parent of children that are in early years. And the ongoing conversation that I have with her, spe specifically when we talk about anti-racism, is that she feels as though parents are not a part of the conversation that is taking place. We mm. very rarely talk about what parents need from the settings that their children are going into. And as much as you both said, children need to be able to go into school and see a representation of everything that they see in society. So they need to see that visual, visual representation that what impact do you think it has on parents seeing black educators in the spaces where their children are being educated? And this is specifically talking about the parents of the black children that you're working with. How important is it for them? That impact is lifelong. You know, there are parents, there are families that I still connect with now, even though I'm not physically at the nursery, whose children are now 18. Mm. And it means that there is, as we talked about, this level of comfort and this reassurance, especially when you come into a setting where, you know, in my case, the team were predominantly black and brown. Mm. And when parents, when families come into that, you know, we are very interconnected across the diaspora. So when we talk about, okay, Black African, what are we saying, you know, because we know that there are cultural differences, nuances between being Black Somali and Black Ghanaian, mm. Black Nigerian, you know. And so when we think about all of these things, we have to understand, yes, we're not a homogenous group, but there are things that connect us as people, which is the thread that runs through our Blackness. And for mm. families, for parents, when they come in and they see that, it has been, in my experience, a sigh of relief. Mm. Just being yourself, being accepted as you, that your parenting style isn't questioned, that your approach to discipline isn't challenged, that everything you do isn't second guessed. And that I think that provides a level of confidence for the parents as well, mm. because often, you know, there are situations that occur where parents were sometimes not ready to be parents and that happens in all communities but for some reason our experience as black people who are not ready to be parents it's amplified so mm. that's why we have this narrative about absent black fathers yeah. or you know black men not being able to fulfill their role as a parent and mm. it's a very dangerous space to move into because that means that that judgment is being passed on to those very black parents those black dads mm. um if there is no cultural competency, no cultural understanding of the fact that that is a narrative, mm. is something that is falsified, it is something that is amplified by the media to give people a perception of blackness or black manhood or black parenting. Mm. You know, the same narrative about 
black people beat their kids. There are a lot of communities in which children are beaten, but beaten to us might mean something else. Mm. It's not to dismiss the fact that, of course, it happens. However, having black practitioners who have an understanding of the communities that they are embedded within, have an understanding of the parenting of the families, it just makes life so much easier. And that's mm. been based on what I have had reported to me, having always engaged with black parents and also within this looking at the white parents of black children mm. because that's another conversation to have Absolutely. having conversations with those parents about what is appropriate what is not appropriate yeah you know, how are children labeled defined what terms are we using so we have to look at blackness as you know such a such a you said Muna is so diverse mm. you know our blackness is so diverse yeah, so I do I, I do think as I said there's weight in that parents feel seen and they feel acknowledged absolutely and I think the importance of having cultural competency but also having that representation there isn't that you're going to have a one-size-fits-all you're not gonna just because there's a there's a teacher of color in the room doesn't mean they're going to know how to respond to every single parent and every single child as there's a child of color in that room what it does mean is that they'll know how to start asking questions. And I think that's the thing that's missing in the spaces that we're in is the educators that we have in there most of the time are so unaware of the cultural differences, so unaware of the dynamics that are at play, that are hidden, that are insidious, that they just aren't asking the right questions. And so as much as it is about the parents feeling seen, it's about them knowing that they'll be heard. If a parent raises a concern, they know that that isn't going to come with a lot of other assumptions around them, like the angry black mother, the angry black father, and that they can actually feel as though they can engage with that educator as their child's educator without having all of those preconceived ideas of how they're being framed in that space. So it doesn't mean, and this is exactly the same as my sister said, the, the, the teachers that are educating her children are South Asian. She said, I go into there and I feel such at ease when my children enter into that space, not because they know our culture, not because they know um, what my child needs in, in terms of cultural responsiveness, but they ask me what they think they don't know. And that's the difference is there's a, that engagement, there's that willingness to communicate with the things that you don't know and have conversations that may be uncomfortable. And I don't know why that is, but it, I feel as though from my experience, it's the educators of color that are more willing to ask the questions of the things that they don't know, rather than taking for granted that just because they've got their qualification in early years, that they covered all the bases and that they can just go in there and, and do what they need to do. Liz, I want to talk to you about Black Boy Joy, because I mm. think this is such a significant topic. And I think Jamal, please chip in on this as well, because I've had so many conversations with people around the way in which play in early years is framed and the way in which black childhood is framed and how mm. we don't often think about why this notion of play, of joy, of happiness is restricted when it comes to the black child experience. And so please tell the listeners mm. about this notion of black boy joy and some of the work that you're doing around that. Yeah, so Black Boy Joy is um, a webinar course that I've run and it was born out of an experience that I'd had with 
many, many black boys that were in my care during my time at the nursery. One particular boy, Taziah, he's already famous, so I can say his name, um, but he featured in a 2016 documentary that the BBC did. <clears throat> and part of that was filmed in the nursery and it was about, will Britain ever have a black prime minister? And it followed a story about Taziah who had come to my setting after being excluded by three years old um, from three other settings before he came to me. So yeah, excluded from. At three and years ex- old. At three years old. And these exclusions were based on what I call the myth of misbehavior. And it's a perfect example of the inadequacy of being able to read and understand cultural compatibility an understanding or a misinterpretation of what is deemed to be quote-unquote misbehaviour. And it's really interesting within the early years that there's a literacy associated with additional needs, special educational needs. Um, But when it comes to behaviour presented by a black boy, it becomes something that's unmanageable. It becomes something that is not acceptable. It becomes, you know, the very early stages of the adultification of the black boy, that this is no longer a three-year-old. This is a 21-year-old, you know? Mm-hmm. This is no longer a three-year-old who's exploring his emotions um, and going through those things that the yummy mummies get to label the terrible twos. Mm-hmm. We don't have that privilege. When I say we, I say black people. Black boys don't have the privilege of terrible twos. They mm-hmm. have you're naughty, you don't understand, you need to go. So it was really interesting because when I started thinking about the development of the Black Boy Jewel webinar, I wanted to draw on some wider systemic figures around how Black men are demonised within society. I draw on statistics around, obviously, stop and search, draw on the time frame in which Black boys are then seen through this lens of being a problem, not worth investing in, And look at some of the specific, I guess, ways in which early years educators should be forced to stop and think before they act, should be forced to stop and have a conversation about emotions, should be forced to stop and have a conversation which questions their own prejudices, their own internalised racism, because it forms very, very early. And when you see a black boy, what are you seeing What are you carrying in terms of that baggage into that conversation as an early years educator when you're speaking to his parents? You know, so Tazaya formed the basis of this webinar, really. And, you know, I'm still in touch with Tazaya and his family now. And it was really interesting because what had happened is that when he came to my setting, his mom had started to take on board the fact that her child was a problem. His mom had started to take on board this narrative that the other settings had told her about her son. And what I think that I did in turn was restore her faith in the fact that there's nothing wrong with your child. He's a child. He's doing what children do. And it was very emotional, that journey, because he was with me for about a year and a half before he went to school. But there was something that happened in him being in the setting where he was himself. He was able to be him. So imagine already being stigmatised at three. He knows that he's been asked to leave other nurseries before. He knows that there's something about the way in which he presents, which has become um, a demonisation of his character. And what that would do, because that little boy turns into a man at some point, he still has yet to go through primary, Mm -hmm. secondary. you know. And so when I talk about the black boy joy, I talk about how we make sure we overtly create joyous environments and experiences for black boys because there are a disproportionate amount of black boys under five 
who are labelled unfairly and unjustly, and we see this repeated through their lifetime yeah. in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, like, what happens as well is is that when the child is is then labelled, you know, children are 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 very aware of this, and some children, some that boys will play on this because when you're at home, the treatment's different. Mm. You know, the way that you are. Um, your behavior is managed is different so when you go into the setting and you're labeled as this in brackets tyrant you know by these middle-aged white women Mm. and other practitioners you then act upon it and they realize wait if I say boo she's gonna jump Mm. you know if I start throwing things around then I'm gonna get what I want and it and definitely like Liz said it echoes throughout their whole lives, you know, through school, the whole schooling to mm-hmm. adult life. And when they've got, when they've built up this mindset of I'm the issue, I've got a problem, you then have this overflow of children being excluded, expelled, sent to Prus, mm-hmm. or just home being homeschooled or just truanting, you know, mm-hmm. because yeah. they don't feel understood by those that are supposed to be teaching them yeah so the system the system is consistently failing and what I try to say is that the system is not designed or built for you this system Mm. is built to oppress you there is no school to prison pipeline the pipeline is nursery to prison Mm. because at every stage of the black boy's life there is terrorization you hear about how Christina Dick speaks about stop and search we hear about the brilliant work of Mentivity is it Mentivity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that he, he's doing. You know, you can't even go and play on your bike outside of your house because the police officers are going to come and ask you why you're there, guilty of just being black whilst standing. It's mm. a consistently oppressive system. This system is built to break you, yeah. irrespective, right, of what class you believe you belong to. Mm-hmm. So when we are interjecting a conversation around class and I'm going to come up and say, well, I'm middle class. So these things, listen, when I come out of my house, I'm a black woman. Yeah. The end. When my husband leaves the house, he's a black man. Mm-hmm. The end. Nobody's stopping to ask you what class you are a part of. So, of course, yes, conversations about class can be had, but we should never, ever, ever for a second delude ourselves into thinking that that is going to be our saviour. Because it isn't. Our saviour is going to be ourselves in terms of us coming together across the diaspora and really having a very upfront conversation about what is going on, how are we supporting one another, and then a conversation across different minoritized communities about how we can be better allies to the British-born Chinese community during Mm -hmm. a time of COVID where racist attacks are on the absolute high Mm. just because you've come out and you're presenting as British East or Southeast Asian yeah how are we going to be better allies to our Muslim brothers and sisters before we are concerned with whiteness which we are of course Mm. we are because we know that that's the overall oppressive overarching system that is controlling us all is causing us to have this these discrepancies amongst and within our communities But we must understand that all of this starts in the early years. And at the moment, the early years has been controlled by one specific narrative. So, yes, 
decolonize the EYFS, that's fine, whatever. However, what? how are we interpreting, even if the EYFS is decolonized, how are we, how are the practitioners interpreting what they should be doing? And then how is that governed? How is that observed? How is that regulated? Because it's still regulated by a white supremacist system called Ofsted. Mm. So, you know, you're, you're in this right, this mousetrap all the time. That becomes tiring because before yeah. you know it, me and Jamal have been in this collectively for nearly 40 years mm. and neither of us are 40. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think the most, the, there's two significant things that I think I took from what both of you have said. And the first is that it feels like we're starting this work too far down the pipeline. A lot of the times when this is the most, when we're the most vocal about the damage the system has done to our children is when they are between the ages of 14 to 18. And as a youth worker, they were the young people that I worked with, young black boys who were deemed to be at risk, who were deemed to be um, at risk of gang violence, youth violence, whatever you want to call it, exclusion. And it always, the conversation always started of, they're in secondary school, this is when their socialization starts and this is where they start to form identities, etc. And my response is always, you can't undo the damage of a system. It's, it, it's really difficult. You can, but it's really difficult to undo the damage of a system when a child is 14 years old and they have been told that they are threatening, that they are violent, that they cannot learn, that they will not learn, that their parents cannot parent from the moment they were three years old. Mm-hmm. That is 10, 11 years of a child being told these messages and not just the t- child internalizing it, but the family and the community that surround them internalizing these messages as well. I find myself going into communities, talking to them about the experiences of young black boys in secondary schools. And I have parents and community members that will tell me it's too late for them. They've almost given up and they've internalized and accepted some of those narratives. And as soon as you start to talk to them, and you're absolutely right, Liz, we need to have a conversation internally as a community as well about this, because there's so much of these messaging that's internalized. The moment you say we need to look at anti-racism within early years, the issue starts in early years. People don't think it's significant because we've Mm -hmm. also accepted this idea that when children are in nursery, they are being protected they are being cared for, they are being nurtured. And I've had parents say to me, I go take my child to earlier than I take my child to nursery so that they can help me be a better parent. They lose confidence at that stage. Before their child even gets to primary, before their child gets to secondary, they Mm -hmm. lose their confidence in their own parenting Mm -hmm. from early Mm -hmm. years. And they rely on those that are within their settings to guide them through that process. And so all of the messaging that starts around what does childhood play look like? What does this look like? What does that look like? The way that it's framed is always going to be through the lens of whiteness. Yeah. Look at the framing of forest school. It's so interesting. Exactly. The framing of forest school. I put something up the other day on my Instagram about how we are indoctrinated into early years. We look at Bogotsky and Piaget and Montessori. And yeah. I said, the fact of this is that they're all dead and white. So yeah. what is happening? Why and how are we building a new framework through which we are understanding early years practice? Are we looking at any of the scholars from anywhere else, right, mm. outside of Europe, this yeah. model? And still we internalise, oh, it's a Montessori day nursery, so it's mm. fantastic. Oh, they do forest school. So the, the narrative of forest school has been adopted by the white middle class. If yeah. we grew up in the Caribbean, if we grew up in the continent of Africa, our whole lives were forest school. We were outside. 
Yeah, so absolutely. That and is how play was formulated. But yeah. those theorists don't get to be mentioned. People can't even be bothered to go and do the work. I yeah. put that up on my Instagram and it was as if I was dropping gold. People are like, mm. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's all that I've looked at. Why? Why yeah. have you not gone and explored the fact that this is a narrative that is being sold to you? It is not yeah. fact. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the primary goals or the primary things that um, decolonizing the curriculum needs to do is to demystify these theories that they are not the central theories of, of making things happen we shouldn't be making them the, the sole canon of knowledge and also unpacking some of the ways in which these theories are hugely problematic in how they frame mm. our children i've had conversations with people where i've said to them you you need to understand the research that Piaget and Vygotsky did and you need to understand the history of what that research actually is you have to understand that Maslow's hierarchy of needs wasn't developed by Maslow it was it was an indigenous and a spiritual um, mechanism that was taken from and then he exploited it and used it even the Montessori idea the origin of a Montessori school did not start from Maria Montessori it started from Islamic philosophy about child rearing and child raising and people don't know this because again we have a curriculum at every stage that centers theorists that are European, that are male, uh, that Absolutely. are white, dead and stale. Do you know what Absolutely. I mean? And Absolutely. So, and so my, my messaging all the time is, yes, we need to get to practitioners who are working within our schools, but we have to, rather than dealing with just the symptom of the problem, we have to deal with the root and the root cause of the problem is teacher education. Mm-hmm. And I, I sincerely believe that teacher education from early years through to higher education is completely what I'm trying to think of a polite way of saying it's it's not fit for purpose of course it's not but 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 Bernard Cord has been writing about this since 71 exactly this is nothing new this is nothing new yeah right so Mm -hmm. when we're looking at the work of Bernard Cord in 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 that time you know we're looking at a time where my parents came to the UK from Jamaica at age 14 educationally subnormal apparently Mm -hmm. according to the Mm -hmm. British system right Mm -hmm. my parents are now 66 and 69 I am 38 having this conversation in 2020 something around Yep, yep, yep. Right. So we have to we have to think now. Where are we getting this information from, and why are we not being educationally curious? Why are we not thinking about the fact that the work of all of the black scholars that we know, that we love, the activists that have done this work before us, why are we not drawing on those people to inform our early years practice? Why are we not looking at the Black Panther breakfast club model? Why are we not looking at that as a way of informing our practice? The supplementary school, why are we not looking at these texts this information it's all there for us mm-hmm. and if we're not willing to access it and engage with that material it continually will fall on deaf ears and then mm-hmm. it will be left to people like me Jamal there's a whole host of us yeah. Laura Henry mm-hmm. uh, we talk about these things all the time we think mm-hmm. okay Dr Stella Louie Dr. Sharon Collinley was there's so many of us that are out here doing this work but I'm also saying let's draw on the work of Professor Kindy Andrews he's written about the supplementary school system yeah you know it's it's there for us so I find it really frustrating to be honest but you know it is though Liz yeah the difference Mm. between now and then even though we're fighting the same fight yeah Mm. is that this is the information age Mm. and 
Do you know what I mean? Before, like in the in the sixties and the, the the fifties, and all these times when they had the civil rights movements and so on, yeah, these people were were disbanded, yeah, yeah, and they used the the system in brackets used all these different methods of infiltrating these great bodies that were making big change. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they labeled them as terrorists. Mm-hmm. They labeled them enemies of the state. But these people were about progress. They were about real change. Mm. Yeah, and what's happened is just like the the sun, the moon, the planets, you know, Mm. there's a cycle. You know, the time has come again. And this is the information age. So people like myself and you two powerful, powerful ladies is that we're not standing for this no more. Mm. And there's so much research, reports, you know, documents that have been written up to say, wait a minute, there's so much disparity, there's so much imbalance, there's mm. so much inequality. How yeah. can we then sit here and not do something about it? Mm. But you notice the louder that we get, the more denial, the more gaslighting. Yeah. So the louder yes. that we get is the more absolute pushback. And now it's like whiteness is enraged. How dare you? Mm. Now we're going to just ban talk about anti-racism. Now we're going to just ban talk about the fact that white supremacy is a myth. White privilege mm-hmm. is a myth. You can't teach that. You can't even talk about that. You yeah. see what the system does every time it sees that we're rising. And this yeah. is historical. This has always been the case. Mm. You know, when we are taught about Greek mythology, you know, mm-hmm. ancient Greeks, mm-hmm. you know, what we're still having this conversation. Yeah, we're really absolutely. still having this conversation. We don't want to talk about anything else. We just want to talk about Greeks and Latin. Mm-hmm. And so that is still positioned as the top, the pinnacle, the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And then what you said is absolutely right, Jamal. Then we get people who are here, they're infiltrators. They're there to mm-hmm. spin this myth back to us. And then they look like us. So mm-hmm. we're just like, okay, it's back to being kind of like, brother malcolm in this whole conversation yeah so we're having to kind of work out who's who because then you've got people you know in this absolute demonic tory government system Mm -hmm. talking a madness Mm. Mm. and this is the thing liz it because it's systemic and we keep going back to this because it's systemic one of the things that we are not naming is that a function of racism is epistemic violence it's violence Mm. through knowledge that information is there those books are there the knowledge is there but it's the systemic nature of what's going on here. It's the systems, it's the institutions, it's the structures that decide what is going to be legitimized and what is going to be delegitimized. So there's a reason why we don't have Paulo Freire in in every single educator's handbook, which it should be. There's a reason why we're not getting people to read bell hooks. There's a reason why not many people read Franz Fanon to learn about the experiences of black trauma. These texts are there. These intellectuals have been doing this work. We are not the first anti-racists. We are not the first black people doing this work. But the knowledge that we produce hasn't been (coughs) legitimized within these institutions, and it won't be legitimized. It seems that I remember hearing, you know, Craig say this. You know, it seems that the price of our freedom is death, and that Mm. is very real, and that is death in every sense of the word, physical, metaphorically. You know, spiritually, emotionally, when we look at disproportionate amounts of us in the mental health system, you know, it's death in every form. And so that's why I said at the start of this, before we started recording, Jamal, listen, if I go off on one. (laughs) No, no, it's it's, it's, it's important. It's so upsetting and and boring, boring 
that's yeah. how I find it now. Boring. Absolutely. And I think what we need to do is draw that link between making sure we are accessing that knowledge and making sure that knowledge is accessible for others, but also making sure that we're not just leaving it at this notion of intellectualizing our experiences and actually mm-hmm. turning it into action. Because what you'll find is where people start to engage with so-called black literature is when they're at university when they've started to think about, oh, how, how do I, I'm going to go to a book club. I'm going to intellectualize it. I'm going to discuss and debate <laughs> some of these issues. Whereas how many people do you know that are engaged in the day-to-day work that you do that are able to use these books and apply it into their practice and justify it mm-hmm. as part of their practice? We don't have those accesses. We don't have those resources. We don't have those spaces to do that. And most educators you'll speak to will say, the time where I had the most amount of space to actually engage in meaningful knowledge development and reflective practice was in my initial teacher training phase and when I was Mm. studying to be a teacher and that is the most crucial space that we have for educators that we do not use effectively enough Mm -hmm. it makes you think about allyship Mm. you know this thing about real allyship not just and like you said joining a book club and all these kind of things and I tell a lot of my 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 white colleagues you know that are intrigued or they want to make a difference i tell them listen this is a marathon you know this ain't a hundred meter sprint so i know because you've heard about black lives matter and you see the protest and things like that you know you jumping up and 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 saying that you want to create a facebook group or something like that and hold this discussion about white supremacy and making change and all these kind of things that's not the work the work is calling a spade a spade the work is, if you see a mm-hmm. panel and the panel's not diverse, there's no black faces, calling them out. Because, you know, it's one thing when black people are calling it out, but it's another mm-hmm. thing when your allies are calling it out alongside you. Absolutely. We're not asking you to be my saviour, you know, be my, my, my hero. No, we're asking you to stand alongside me, you know, and call out injustice. And in training, this should be part of your CPD. You know, straight away, you should be sitting down thinking, you know, how can I better my my practice? How can I um, I lessen the bias that I've had, that I've grown with, you know, that I've developed throughout my whole life? You know, some people, they're racist and it's a hard bullet to swallow that, yeah, you are racist. But part of a lot of it's not your fault. Mm. It's what you were grown into. Yeah. you know and and the, the 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 narratives that were sold to you from a child like black man's timing or mm-hmm. black people are lazy or black like Liz said a lot of black families you know don't have like black dads like there's a lot of single parent black mm-hmm. families and and things like that those narratives are sold but then when a black family shown in a Christmas advert <laughs> uproar yeah uproar and I tell yeah. a lot of people when they say black people are so late oh you're so laid back you're so lazy well, do you know what? Our laid back and, and laziness is what helped to rebuild this city. Mm. This city of England, the UK, you know, this place, mm. this, this, this country. Yeah, 100%. And me, me and Liz are just nodding our head throughout everything you were saying because it's just, it's so spot on. You're absolutely right. I think there's, there's this assumption that the work doesn't need to be done. And people are joining book clubs, they're tweeting, they're sharing hashtags, they're doing things that are performative allyship. And they're almost, again, waiting on us to hold them to account and challenge them and say, what you're doing, you could be doing more. And then you get the question of, what can I do? What can I do to help? And again, you're directing. 
you're not only educating them on the issue, but you're saying, right, this is where I need you to be positioned. This is what I need you to do, et cetera. And you're 100% right, Jamal. We need to move towards the point where our allies are leading this work instead of us leading this work, because ultimately exactly. this is not a black problem. And I exactly. keep saying so, that. And I'll can you say it again? It. Wait, Muno, Muno, can you say that again, please? Please, one more <laughs> time. Say, Just say we, that again. We say this over and over again. Racism <laughs> isn't a black problem. And I think the idea around allyship, and I'm starting to find this really problematic in my own work, is people start the conversation around allyship with how can I be a better support? And that mm. still presents the idea that the black people are doing the work, but how can I be there to offer a helping hand? And my response is, it should be the other way around. You mm. can already see, imagine somebody carrying a sack of potatoes. They're already carrying a heavy burden. You're not gonna just put your hands underneath them and say, just in case that sack of potato falls, I'm ready to catch it. You'll say, let me carry that load instead of you. Let me take some of that load on. What can I sacrifice or what can I give up so that you are not having to walk a further distance so you're not ha having to carry a heavier load? They're not asking the important questions of themselves. But that requires decentering. 100%. They're not decentering. Yeah. They're not able have, to decenter. Yeah, you still have allies that are trying to negotiate around their privilege. Mm. Absolutely. They're still trying, like, what can I do mm. while still holding Absolutely. on to this safe space that I have? And that's and a hard pill to swallow. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And they don't want to be alienated by their peers. Yeah. This is Probably. this is a thing. They're, they're scared. They're scared yep. that yep. other white people, other white yep. consultant specialists are gonna yep. look at you as, you know, oh yeah, this person they're funny, they're calling out racism, and, and then yep. you're not able to climb to the to the heights that you want to climb to mm, you know yeah. so it becomes a thing of you versus the issue what's more important yeah you know when it's an issue that affects us all to be honest in, in exactly. the grand scheme of things and if we are really about the children you know and we're really about this early years work and building the future generation then this is this dealing with this this this, this anti-racist practice is a pinnacle factor in how to do so. Absolutely. And I think Liz, earlier on, you said this, I'm going back to the word safety because you said it earlier on. And I think in this work that we're doing, we are always putting ourselves in spaces that are inherently unsafe for us. But the work around allyship always seems to be about trying to say, do the work in supporting whilst trying to remain as safe as possible. And my response mm -hmm. to anybody who's doing active allyship work and meaningful active allyship work is if racism is an inherently violent system and you've benefited from that violent system in your entire existence, there's no way that you can go, you can turn your back from that system and challenge that system mm -hmm. in a way that still keeps you safe. Mm -hmm. I think it's about us having an honest conversation about what we actually mean by safety, mm -hmm. because even that is looked at through the lens of whiteness. Yes. And another thing as well, can I touch on, yeah? Mm -hmm. Don't get it twisted, guys, yeah? Allyship, all the, the real allies out there, respect to you. But allyship, allyship is not making a profit mm. off of this work. Yes. Yeah? Allyship is doing this because, you know, you want, basically, you want to be a part of the change. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are out here that are saying, okay, yeah, I've got anti-racist workshops and so on. And they're making money off of it. Mm. And they're not affected 
by it directly the same yeah. way that we are but then mm. when we're asked to come into a setting we're asked to do it for free mm. can you imagine being yeah. asked to relive your trauma for free that's why I'm yeah. saying yeah. everything that I do in terms of developing this program for mm. early years specifically is about the fact that you need to engage with this right and you're going to pay me to engage mm. with this you are mm. going to pay me right and that you're also going to use this as a tool to really go away on your own mm. and reflect and then reflect about the way in which you are going to take action not for you to come back and ask me to validate whether you're doing the right thing because yeah. some of you are, are are big in your 50s you've mm. been in this planet on this planet for a long long time mm. so some of the work that I explore in in my webinars is really about that personal reflection which I'm finding a lot of white practitioners are really struggling with. Mm. They still want to come back to me and ask me to mark their work. Yeah. No, no. The same way like people will say, oh, if I can't get to your webinar, can you kind of send me a recording? No, for you to replay my trauma. Yeah. This is traumatic work. It's work that I am deciding to do. It's Mm. work that I am doing at the cost of my own personal and mental safety because I want that next generation to come up of three and four year olds of one and two year olds to not have to be having this conversation in 30 plus years time that is why I do what I am doing but I also understand and, and really kind of deep the fact that my labor isn't free yeah because you know that 400 years that's done now I'm not doing it again my ancestors have paid yeah so you don't need to understand that this is because we want this to absolutely change even though we know it is not our fault Mm. you know we're still willing to do this and so the safety thing comes up all the time moon and it's you know when I do my webinars I always have um a white ally Mm who opens up my webinars introduces the team tells the white people in advance you're going to feel uncomfortable but guess what welcome mm. <laughs> i i too am a white early years practitioner shout outs to kerry Payne. Mm. shout out to amy martin hey. those two white women come into my webinar space and do the work they are allowing themselves to be vulnerable they are allowing themselves to be that buffer because mm. i walk into a webinar space knowing at any time i can be attacked Absolutely. by the violence of white women's words mm. by the violence of this whataboutery Mm. by the violence of this well we've always done Chinese New Year like this we've always let the kids dress up to be Indian what does that even mean what are we doing here so when white women come into my space to act as buffers to be allies to put themselves in the firing line to stand up and say guess what guys we are not doing this properly we are not doing this good enough because otherwise Liz wouldn't be here doing this work so before I introduce Liz and so that's how I set up my team because yeah. it's very important. You visually you see that we are all in this together. I don't mm-hmm. want to have to be in this with you, to be honest. I could be doing other things. However, yeah. this is how I've chosen to present my work. Mm. And the reason and the reason why it isn't free, because it is work. It is intellectual work. It is bringing in your lived experiences, but it is emotional and psychological labor. Me and Bilal talked about this in the first episode where we said any black person who is doing anti-racism work is exhausted when they do that work because you're constantly having to not only relive trauma, but enter into spaces that are violent as well as 
facilitate and take care of everybody who is in that room. So you are the one that is subjected to feeling unsafe. Um, and this is why I don't use the term safe spaces because they don't exist for us when we're doing this work. We Absolutely. are the ones as facilitators who have to ensure that everybody else in the room is guided through uncomfortable conversations while still taking care of them as much as we possibly can in that space. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have to try and take care of ourselves in that space. And that in itself is work in holding a room. And so when I charge people, I literally, and I, I start, when I started doing the consultancy work, I'll be honest with you, I had that gaslighting moment. I had that imposter syndrome moment where I, I thought maybe I'm, I'm pricing myself too high. And I had a really incredible friend of mine who, uh, Martin Glynn, who's a mentor to me, who said- Big to, up Dr. Martin Glynn. Dr. Martin Glynn is mm-hmm. incredible. And I remember him saying to me, you are charging them based on what you're bringing into that room, the years of work that you've done, but also how much it's going to take out from you being in that room. And mm-hmm. I thought about that and I thought, oh my God, all these times that I'm exhausted at the end of it, and I'm, I'm doing this work, I'm going to charge based on that. And I've said yes. that to every single person that has reached out to me, said I'm, I'm doing, I've started on this work around training, around anti-racism. And I've even started a train the trainers program. And I've said to people, you need to understand that one of the biggest skills you need to learn in doing this work is learning how to value yourself and unlearning all of the ways in which the system has made you feel devalued. And we have different ways. So there are a lot of questions that black men will ask about what they can do or not do within this work. And we have to challenge those limits. Black women, even more so in terms of how we are gaslighted, how we are made to question what we can and can't do, the positions that we are allowed to hold, how our knowledge and our experiences are delegitimized within mm-hmm. spaces. All of that work is things that we have to do as facilitators entering into spaces. And so mm-hmm. yeah. Liz going in, you going in to do a workshop, it's not the same as a white woman or a white man going into that space to deliver anti-racism. And they could have been allies in this work for 10, 20 years. It's still not as hard for them as it is for you. No, and I, I think I, I also want to kind of really speak to, because I know when I listened to the podcast that you did, Muna, with Carl, and you mm. spoke about the fact that that was born out of a Twitter thread, there are a lot of things that happen on Twitter which are quite performative, but also which are, you know, quite violent. And one of the things that me and Jamal had talked about recently was about this thread that had been created about slang. Big up Pram Patel mm. as well. Yes, big up Pram. Some big up yourself. Always, right? And some of the things that happen is the visibility of people like Pram empowers people like me. Mm-hmm. The visibility of people like you in that space, Muna, on Twitter, it empowers me. And so when we saw this thread emerge about a thread of predominantly white teachers, it talked about the use of slang and, you know, what would you do? It's, it feeds in to this absolute delegitimizing of language, mm-hmm. who is seen as intelligent, who isn't, how the use of slang is used to weaponize, let's be honest, black and brown children, mm-hmm. how whiteness is reigning supreme and anybody that doesn't speak like, and it's so interesting how that evolved and what happened when it was called out by Pran. By Pran, you know, yeah. that's it. Nobody else, there's a mm. whole heap of educators, edu Twitter, mm. a whole heap of allies, quote unquote, who will mm. say to me and Jamal privately, we've got you, we're supporting you in the DMs. I don't want to do it publicly. Mm. They're always in the DMs. It's always yeah. private. Always. But when we see always. the things play out on the timeline, where are you? Yeah. Do you know what's so funny, yeah? 
and and it doesn't matter. It could be small, it could be big, it could be because there's obviously it's there, there's like a there's a spectrum of things you know that can happen, yeah. And often, you know, we would speak about different issues that are happening in EY education to do with policy and so on, or even to do with people's actions, you know, or panels or something like that, and. You know, the people that sit in those seats of influence yep. are always quiet, but they're yep. the ones that are talking the most about inclusive practice, yep. cult- um, cult- cultural capital, mm. yep. all these kind of things, you know what I mean? And um, it's like, I sit down and I'm like, okay, this thing has happened. Who's talking about it? Nobody. Let me talk about it. No one. No one's it talking becomes, about it. It us. becomes what the age old thing is. It's the public lynching. That is how this thing plays out. It is the public lynching Mm. of black bodies continuously. And Twitter is such a prime example of how we see it play out. And it takes the one brave soul to step forward and say, listen, no, that's not happening today. And everybody else retreats back into their ivory castle and they just look. And then when it comes to a conversation about men attacking women mm. and misogyny, that gets yeah. spoken about. Misogynoir does not yeah. get spoken about when it's the yeah. violence mm-hmm. against the black woman. That conversation is shut down. Black women, you can just take the lynching. If it's ever a white woman, mm. ever a white woman, you see the masses rally around. Everybody's there. And this is why I say time and time again, don't come to talk to me about inclusion. Don't come to talk to me about being a token. Don't come to talk to me and to, oh, I've read your articles. You're so articulate. You read really well. Mm. Don't come to me. It is violent. Yeah. I see who is out here doing the work. I see who mocks, who likes, who talks, who doesn't. We see everything because our conditioning within this society has taught us to be sceptical. Yeah. Our conditioning mm. has trained us to stand back and observe before we take action because there's always the racial trapdoor mm. fall into yeah. the racist trapdoor yeah. somebody's going to yeah. say something it's going to be like oh here we go again yeah here we go again so we have to double double triple check it out all the time yeah absolutely and everything that we say on on twitter has to be intentional because it will always be perceived in a particular way and i've said this to as many black activists as, as i know on twitter to say the words that you post, make sure that the, you are intentional about what you're saying because we don't get second chances. No. Say it again, Muna. Say we, it again. <laughs> we, we, we don't. You, you can have as many followers as you want. It takes one tweet. It takes one person getting offended. It takes one Karen to, to make a request. And yes. that's it. It's not, and yes. it's not just your Twitter reputation that is on the line. This takes no. it offline for you. And so everything that I tweet, I always say to people, I don't care if I tweeted this 12 years ago. I don't care if I tweeted it yesterday. My tweets are always intentional. You can bring the receipts. Show me everything. Mm -hmm. And even if I'm wrong, I will publicly say that I'm wrong. And the idea of DMing people, and I've said this on Twitter as well, I hate when allies private DM and say, the solidarity with you, I support you, et cetera. If you're, sol- if you're demonstrating solidarity, do it publicly. Publicly, yes. Publicly. yes. It's not publicly. solidarity if you are privately mm-hmm. DMing somebody and saying, mm-hmm. um, I just want you to know that I support you, I see you, etc." You can reach out to people and check in with people. Mm-hmm. But if you can see somebody being abused on their timeline, DMing them isn't 
the way to go. And me, Jamal, and I, you get this all the time. All the time. Listen, I get it all the time, man. I get, I get the emails, I get the messages, and do, do you know what's so funny? Yeah, the fact that racism gets a platform, mm. but anti-racism doesn't, and I mm. think that's something that do you know what I mean? We need to reflect on. Like this guy's like Nick for Nick Ferrari, yeah. Yeah. And I'm calling out names. Yes, I am. On LBC, chatting a madness all the time. Guys mm-hmm. like Nigel Farage, chatting a madness. Even down to our, our, our PM, chatting mm-hmm. a madness. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. The ex-president of America, chatting a madness. Mm-hmm. And anytime they're opposed, you know, it's like, oh, okay, you've got a chip on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You've got guys calling the, the royal baby, the royal mixed baby, a chimp. It was really interesting, I think, you know, when we spoke about the Sainsbury's advert and I talked about that we have to consider the black children in that advert. And it was so interesting because early years Twitter was so quiet. So quiet. Yeah. Not a white woman, not a white man said anything about the harm that was caused to those black children that were mm. in that advert every day we are reminded black lives don't matter every day we are reminded mm. black children do not matter every day we are reminded but mm. they want us to play nice they want us to be totally yeah. policed when we are expressing our upset and our anger they don't want to engage because oh we said it in the way that they didn't re- you know it's just a constant mm. policing yeah. and then they wonder why you know when um they do something that they think is a great thing, like accepting apologies for racism um, on yeah, our behalf when on they're our not black. Behalf. On our that behalf. we must just be like, oh, thank you so much. We were waiting for you to become our savior and then mm. feigning ignorance as to why that's not appropriate. When a conversation is happening about race and it's derailed to talk about LGBTQ, let's talk about the intersectionality of LGBTQ communities. Mm. Let's talk about mm. black LGBTQ communities. Mm. Let's not derail the conversation. Let's keep it very focused. But, oh, then you're the bad black, Jamal. You're the bad black. Yeah. So yeah. you've misbehaved. you gotta, yeah. you got to go back out in the field. Because Massa yeah. said. And it, it, it comes with that narrative. It's heavy. It's heavy. And so that's why we have to protect ourselves at all times. Because yeah. whiteness will constantly gaslight us to, to thinking we have just imagined it. It isn't that bad. I want to have private conversations. I'm done with private conversations. Don't done have a conversation there on private. Yeah, done. absolutely. And then, and then there's books like, you know, Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson, you know, yeah, and yeah. he talks about the fact that even those that are educated have been taught in a way that scrutinizes anti-racism and that we look upon each other with, with those eyes of judgment, you know? And the educated people are looking at those that are not so well educated in a way. And then the people are not so educated are looking at the educated in a way. Willie Lynch um, syndrome. Willie Lynch, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a separation, you know, and it's about unity. It affects us all. This racism thing affects us all. Doesn't matter how nice you play for Massa and side and defend and cover and tell us, you know, how to speak you are still being painted with a brush. Mm -hmm. My black brother, my black sister, my black academics, you know? Mm. You need to wise up and really smell the coffee. Because you know what? When they're willing, when they want to knock you off your perch, they will, Mm. yeah? When they want to use you and make you the token black person, 
listen, listen. Mm. You will be used as the scapegoat. You yeah. will be the scapegoat. And I just want to be loud and clear about that, you know? Yeah. It's important. It's important that they hear that. Yeah, Blessings absolutely. to my black people. Because as much as, much as the, uh, we're talking about performative allyship, there's so much performance in the work that we engage with as well. And we know that there are people of colour that are not doing the work or are willingly being the token because it's a safe place. And it offers them comforts and it offers them uh, temporary benefits. And I think that's the key thing is, Jamal, what you highlighted is that it's temporary. I completely hate you. We could go on for ages and ages and ages, but I'm, I'm just going to close it off now by just saying, Liz, Jamal, thank you so much. Please tell people how they can reach you, how they can contact you and any work that you've got going on. Totally. You can get me at the Black Nursery Manager on Instagram, Liz Pem, T-B-N-M on Twitter. My next webinar is the 25th of January. Um, Black Boy Joy and you can register to attend that by getting in contact with me on my socials. Basically you can search Jamal J-A-M-E-L dot Carly and that's the Twitter handle the Instagram handle and yeah man just hit me up on Twitter or Instagram I've got some big things coming soon for 2021 Um, a few articles out there as well there's links on the Instagram, there's links on the Twitter as well. And yeah, man, there's going to be more work and more workshops. Amazing. Thank you so much, Muna. Thank My pleasure. You. And Lessons. hopefully more collaborations between us as well. So I look forward to working with you both in the new year. If we are to truly engage in transformational anti-racism work within education, we have to be willing to start at the very beginning. And in our educational journeys, that very beginning is early years. What the conversation between Liz, Jamal and I highlighted is that these issues are systemic. From classroom dynamics to curriculum, to the ways in which black educators, black children, black parents and black communities are racialized and experience these spaces. These issues are systemic and they cannot be tackled by individuals and by groups on their own. This requires collective action, collective responsibility and collective accountability. Please listen to the reflections that were shared take on board suggestions that have been offered and push in the areas where you have influence and push in the areas where you have control. Remember, this is a movement, not a moment. And if you truly want to be anti-racist, you have to show up in all of the spaces that you hold. You've been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast.